So your product needs to be two, three, four times better than the mainstream alternative if you're gonna have a chance. It really needs to be something that consumers see. They're like, oh yeah, I wanna try that. And then once they try it, it delivers on that. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, the podcast for brands in the health and wellness space who wanna be irresistible, not only to consumers, but to investors and retailers. Here we talk to successful entrepreneurs about the inspiring stories that help them start and grow their awesome brands. And we also talk to investors, leaders in private equity, and retail buyers about what makes brands irresistible to them. So welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. Um, I am very, very excited to be meeting with and talking with Jordan Silbert, who's the CEO and founder of one of my personal favorite brands, um, which doesn't happen every single time I do an interview, so it makes it extra special today. Jordan's the CEO and founder of Q Mixers. So welcome, Jordan. I'm really happy to have you today. Well, I'm happy to be here. Hi. Hi. Um, you have an awesome background, so I hope that everyone can see that. Um, but Jordan's got, if you can't, Jordan has every single mixer, um, I think. that not Maybe not everyone, because I know you have a not, lot of varieties, but lots yeah. of Q Mixers, and I'm sure you guys are at this point, familiar with the brand, but I want to hear it, hear it straight from Jordan. So Jordan, can you talk a little bit about Q Mixers and how you decided to start the brand and why? Sure. Um, so Q Mixers is a, a line of spectacular mixers. Kind of the idea is that there's all these wonderful spirits, um, you know, vodkas, gins, rums, tequilas out there, especially these days. And the world deserves a mixer or lots of mixers of comparable quality and sophistication. And when you mix a good spirit with a great mixer, you have a really, truly terrific drink. And I had the revelation, geez Louise, um, more than 15 years ago, I used to be, I guess, 15 years younger and yeah. uh, be able to drink, you know, five or six uh, gin and tonics on a Tuesday night and pretty, pretty good on a Wednesday morning. And uh, when I was living in a beautiful kind of garden level apartment in Brooklyn with, uh, with my neighbor, um, with my roommate. And uh, one night we had a bunch of friends over drinking gin and tonics and a couple drinks in, I realized everything was great about the world except for the tonic water and uh, decided to kind of make a better tonic water. Uh, long story, a little longer. One of my good friends was telling the same, you know, stupid story he always tells. And I realized my teeth were a little sticky. And I was like, that's kind of weird. And I picked up the Schweppes plastic bottle of tonic water that was sitting right next, you know, on the table. And I looked at it and it was, you know, 25 uh, grams of high fructose corn syrup, natural and artificial flavors, sodium benzoate. I'm like, that's weird. I thought like tonic water was some bitter water thing. And one of my good friends, then wife, um, then girlfriend, now wife and mother of his two kids, was uh, drinking Sprite. She wasn't drinking that night and uh, said, hey, Sarah, can I look at your Sprite for a second? And she handed me the can and it was, you know, 25 grams of high fructose corn syrup, natural and artificial flavors, sodium benzoate. I'm like, guys, this is crazy. These are like the same thing. One's just green and one's yellow. Uh, and then being my good friends promptly ignored it and kind of moved on to everything else. But gin has a real way of, you know, clarifying my thinking. I can see exactly what's important in the world. And granted, I had probably had five or six drinks, but at one point I looked up and realized everything was perfect. You know, the Christmas lights were up. There was a warm night with beautiful breeze. We were drinking, you know, Tangeray, this beautiful bottle of gin with obviously a lot of alcohol in it. And then I looked over at the bottle of Schweppes and I was like, what a piece of crap. You know, the label was peeling off. It was dented. I obviously knew what the liquid was in the bottle. And I said, you know, why is there not a better tonic water? And, you know, the mouse wheels turned slowly, slowly, slowly. And I said, wait a minute, I'm going to make a better tonic water. And I did. 
and it wasn't easy. It took a couple of years, but uh, I ordered some, you know, figured out what tonic water was supposed to be. Supposed to be this thing called quinine, which initially came from bark from a tree from Peru, but now seems to be produced in laboratories in the great state of New Jersey where you live, as well as lots of high fructose corn syrup and then artificial preservatives. So I ordered a bag of bark on the internet and started mixing stuff up in my kitchen. Uh, I eventually made a prototype and I uh, tried my friends on it. They loved it, except the bubbles were driving me nuts because I was just kind of topping it with club soda. So eventually I found like a small little soda plant that would make a couple hundred cases that I would basically just drink myself or give to my friends for their birthdays or whatever. But this was geez, a long time ago. And I posted on a thing called Chowhound, which was like a uh, foodie website, like almost like Craigslist for food. I don't know. It was kind of pretty elementary compared to what all the, the fancy food and drinking blogs are now. But I posted it and I'm like, I live in, um, my name's Jordan and I live in Brooklyn. Does anyone want to try my tonic water? And just so happened that the head bartender from Gramercy Tavern wanted to try it, as well as the owner of Milk and Honey. Wow. Which was like, you know, the first of these. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Grand cocktail lounges. Yeah. And uh, like in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. You know, this was 2000, I guess, six ish. Um, at that point, you know, this whole mixology movement was starting to take on real speed. And it wasn't like I was anything special, but it was more that, you know, Jamian, who was the head bartender at Grimmers Tavern or Sasha from Milk and Honey, had kind of figured out everything else in their bar program. You know, they obviously had good craft beer. They had nice, uh, fine wines. They had some great spirits, whether it be by the big guys or the independent craft distillers. But there wasn't really a better tonic water. So when I posted that, they're like, oh, I, that sounds great to me. And so I went in and started Grimmers Tavern and Jim loved it. He's like, you know, who's your distributor? And I was like, I don't even know what a distributor is. He's like, what's your pricing? I was like, I don't know. Uh, he's like, okay, why don't you go get set up with, uh, with finance? So I got set up with finance and uh, did all this paperwork. And when I got home, I got a call from Sasha and he said, hey, can you bring it by the bar? He, he uh, tried, he loved it. And Sasha was a little uh, looser around the edges of Grandmaster Tavern. And he asked to, uh, hey, can you deliver it after close tonight? So I uh, borrowed a car, 2.30 in the morning. Uh, delivered my first cases, uh, got paid cash out of the register, um, and uh, we were off and running. Though, I guess my big hint to everybody, or big tip to everybody is, uh, that was 15 years ago. <laughs> and so it's been a long process since we had that huge, uh, huge beginning. Uh, but today our stuff is served, you know, at all the four seasons in the country, as all as well as all the P.F. Changs and Buffalo Wild Wings and, you know, all, all the kind of tens of thousands of bars and restaurants in the country, as well as virtually every major food and beverage retailer in the country from Whole Foods, where we started, to Kroger, to Target, to Publix, to Albertsons, and have kind of a real business with 11 different flavors, again, sold at tens of thousands of bars and restaurants and 30 or 40,000 different stores around the country. It's been a, it's a long, long journey, but I'm pretty happy with where we are right now. That's an awesome story. Um, I'm curious, when you started the brand, when you were making your first batches, were you really thinking this is going to be a business or were you thinking, I'm just doing this because I want to better something? So the very first ones, I was just doing better myself, like in the same way, I don't know, what we cook last night for dinner? I had some stupid idea and I cooked it up and uh, it was delicious. So at the beginning, it was more of a hobby, but then pretty quickly on, you know, the idea just makes so much sense mm -hmm. that Gin, again, has a way of clarifying my thinking. And I was like, this makes sense. Why isn't there uh, a better line of mixers? Why isn't the mixer shelf look like the vodka shelf or the yeah. cereal shelf or the or the yogurt yeah. shelf where there's a, you know, good, better, best or crappy yeah. and good, depending on how snooty you are. Um, so it kind of made sense. And 
don't know, I'm pretty intense. And so once I went, I went. Um, but having those kind of very first bars and restaurants want to buy it and then proudly serve it to their customers certainly gave me some confidence. And then it just like the, the confidence just came real quick at the beginning. And that, I guess, propelled me forward. And then it's, you know, finding next uh, and subsequent things to kind of get excited about and motivated about and frankly confident because of uh, that just keeps you going and uh, kind of been lucky enough to find those every every six months every year uh, for the last 15 years. When you were getting started and you were in your little small production facility how did you sort of imagine yourself scaling the business up and is that actually how it happened was the way you thought it would happen the way it did happen. So when I first started, I used to count in terms of bottles that we made mm-hmm. and we would do, I don't know, some equivalent of 500 cases and maybe, and it would take us six hours because the plant wasn't particularly up to date in terms of technology. I was annoying everybody because I wanted every single bottle to be perfect. And then I remember we did our first like real run, which was like a full day's worth of product, which was 2,500 cases, which was like, two tractor trailers worth. Mm -hmm. And I remember having that sitting in a warehouse. I was like, oh my God, this is the most tonic water that I've ever seen on the planet. And now we do a run and it's 60 tractor trailer loads. Um, Like it pulled out that day. It's like, uh, and not only the tractor trailers, but like the big ones, like those big ones that are annoying on the highway. So, and we're doing those, you know, pretty frequently now, multiple times a month. So I did not envision necessarily the straight line from there to there but a lot of that's because i just didn't (laughs) i didn't know uh and at the end of the day i was always confident that people wanted to drink better mixers you know i say to people all the time it is a phenomenal time to be a drinker right now first and foremost the big guys make good booze like tangeray is a terrific gin um now, Gay is a great rum. Buffalo Trace, Sir Maker's Markers, Knob Creek's a great bourbon. Like, there's great spirits out there made by the big guys, as opposed to beer, which, say what you want about Budweiser and Miller and Coors, they're very refreshing, they're very consistent. They may not taste delicious all the time, but the great big companies make great spirits. Then there's all these distillers who are doing really fun, interesting stuff. And that was kind of starting in the mid-2000s when I was starting. So I always knew that people were really getting geeky and really excited about you know drinking Hendrix instead of Bombay Sapphire or Tito's instead of Kettle One or whatever. And Therefore, if they were going to drink a vodka tonic or a gin and ginger beer, uh, they would want a great ginger beer, kind of made with the same kind of attention to detail and passion and kind of relentlessness as those great spirits. So that always made sense to me. And it was just a matter of like, hey, how do I tell a lot of people about the fact that there actually is an option for a better mixer? So I thought in retrospect that that would happen faster. Like I'm from New York City and I move fast. And so when tell, someone tells me an idea, I'm like, yes, let's do it. Everybody should know about it. But I don't think that's the way the real world works. Um, I'm now the happily married with two relatively young kids and obviously a business, a mortgage. And like, you just get distracted. You don't necessarily think about your mixers all the time. So it's just taken a while to let people know that there is a better mixer op- option out there and kind of explain to them why it's a little better. But once they know, it's just... Can't go back, right? Goes. Yeah, you can't go back and it kind of spirals. Mm-hmm. And it kind of has a virtuous cycle. It's just like, how quickly can that, that cycle spin is the real, is the real challenge. How did you scale? Did you go and find investment capital or did you bootstrap it? So yes and yes. I started with five people, no, seven people gave me $5,000. So $35,000. And I used that 
to make that prototype, but I actually, I had the prototype, it actually makes something that I could actually sell to real places with a label and all, all of that. And I used that to have enough for have, you know, Grammar's Tavern, Milk and Honey, uh, it was Little Branch, uh, it was the other one, Blue Hill at Stone Barns is a farm to table restaurant up in uh, Westchester, which is phenomenal. And then I uh, snuck into Dean and DeLuca offices and got them uh, to carry our, our place as well. So I used those to support those. And really, relatively quickly on, a gin company reached out to me and they were doing a big event at Rockefeller Center and they wanted my tonic water for an ultimate gin tonics. And first I said, how the heck did you get my phone number? But then once we figured out that Milk and Honey gave it to him, I was like, sure, let's do it. And I showed up with, you know, 10 cases and a good old time. And uh, Florence Fabricant from the New York Times was one of the attendees that night. She's the head dining in writer for the New York Times. And um, I granted may have had a couple of gin tonics while I was talking to her, but she got excited about the kind of the concept. And the next morning I got a call from the fact checking department in the New York Times that we're going to be featured on the front page of the dining in section that subsequent Wednesday. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing. And yeah. I didn't have a website. I had like a couple hundred cases in my, in my basement. Um, so I got a website up in two days and uh, basically a picture and said, Hey, if you want my tonic water, call me, here's my cell phone. And uh, <laughs> next week I got like 800 calls from around the world. I literally had bartenders in Japan calling me on my cell phone. Um, and I said no to just about everybody uh, except a couple whole food, uh, a couple uh, bars and restaurants in New York city that I could deliver to myself. And uh, the whole foods flagship store in Austin, Texas, they wanted to buy a pallet. Uh, I didn't know what pallet was, but nonetheless, I said yes. And then I quickly, quickly Googled uh, and figured out, oh, that's what those wood things are on the side of the road and uh, figured out how to get one of those couple of one of those wood things to my apartment and get the product on that and get that thing down to Texas. And then me and my then girlfriend, now wife and mother of my two kids, we went down for a weekend of in-store demos at Whole Foods. And so, you know, by day it was try my tonic water, try my tonic water. And at night, you know, Tex-Mex food and margaritas. And by the time I got back, I was like, I think I have something here. And oh. so I quickly went door to door the five Whole Foods in New York City. And at that point, you could still go into an individual store and they could decide to buy something, bring something in. And I basically promised, hey, bring this product in. I will demo it till uh, it sells through. And so I did something like 28 demos in 27 days or something ridiculous. And by the end of that, I was like in all the Whole Foods in New York. I was had these fancy bars and restaurants. And yeah, one of my friends is in finance. And I basically got his boss and his boss's colleagues to put some money in, not in retrospect, not that much money, but basically enough to get me through more than a year and a half or so. And uh, basically a couple hundred thousand bucks and um, kind of went from there. But one of the things I learned pretty early on is these food and drink businesses tend to be what they call capital intensive. You kind of need to buy the glass and the quinine and the agave and the bottle caps and pay the bottler. You need to pay for all of that before you sell the stuff. So uh, you need some cash uh, to do this business. Um, mm -hmm. And it took me a little while to figure that out. But once I figured that out, it was like, either I'm going to do this or it's going to be a hobby. And I uh, uh, decided to do it. And it was more of a not lifestyle decision, but it was just a decision. It's like, you know, if somebody wants to make, you know, their own tonic water just for their friends and family, like, God bless you. Like, that is awesome. And you should do that. It just wasn't going to be necessarily what I wanted to be doing. Um, I wanted to build something. I really wanted to make something that the whole world could drink. And uh, I don't know, you know, it's a weird 
tough, scary world right now. And maybe I don't have the ability to, you know, fix Afghanistan or fix global warming, but I can uh, kind of help people drink a little better and be a little more happy uh, when they have a gin tonic or a Jack and Ginger or a Paloma or something. Yeah. That's amazing. What were you doing before that, before you started the business and, and until you got to a place where, you, I mean, are you still doing something else or nope, nope, no? Okay, so what were you doing? Two jobs, if not six. Nothing to do with nothing. I was doing post 9-11 rebuilding. So I'm from Manhattan and I was living in California pre 9-11. I was actually visiting my parents on 9-11 and the uh, world obviously blew up and uh, my flight on the 13th was canceled. I didn't feel comfortable flying on the 20th. And by the time I flew back in late September, I decided to move back to New York City and help. So relatively quickly on, I got a job with uh, the Business Improvement District for Lower Manhattan, a thing called oh, the wow. Downtown Alliance. And I started by overseeing power washers, you know, clean debris off all the uh, the buildings nearby. And my my big trick is that the, the you know the work obviously got done after hours because they didn't want all this uh, power washing going on during the day. Yeah. Uh, I would go out to the bars at night and come back and visit my guys at you know two in the morning on my way home. And they're like, "Who is this guy showing up at two in the morning?" And meanwhile, you know that five or six drinks at the bar. I was smiling at everybody, but the work got uh, done really quickly, really well. And then I did that for about two or three years. And my job relatively quickly on was to come up with ideas and get them funded and implemented that would help the area with either the, the businesses or the uh, the residents down there. And I did a lot with telecom and technology because I've been doing some stuff with tech and internet out uh, in California. And yeah, I did a lot with wireless redundancy, did a lot of stuff like that. It was an awesome job. Uh, at some point, it got pretty political, though, you know, a couple of years in at the very beginning, I'd come up with an idea it was better. So I'd get money and get to do it. But then two or three years in it, yeah, the big guys started latching on and it just got a little less fun. Um, but I had the idea for this kind of while I was doing that. So interesting. You're not a stranger to having ideas and finding ways to fund them. No, no. Different way. No. And yes, no, that's always kind of what I've done. It's just like come up with ideas and figure out how to do them. Um, and, uh, the story I sometimes tell is that my mother was a potter, uh, you know, made pottery before I was born and she subsequently quit when she got pregnant because of all the chemicals and everything. But I was a rambunctious boy growing up in our household. And the one thing I was not allowed to break, you know, I could break the chandeliers, I could break the TV, I can break grandma's China. The only thing I couldn't break was the kind of the bowls and plates and cups that she had made. That's really what had value in our house because that she had actually made something. So when I think about, you know, what's kind of driven me or focused me or whatever the word is, it's that growing up, the value uh, was perceived as being created by something that she laid hands on kind of made herself. So I was always really excited about making things myself. Um, and I think this tonic water and subsequent mixer uh, line uh, is very much a reflection of that. That's so awesome. What a great story. So, so where are you now as a brand? What stage do you feel like you're at? So we're at every major food and retailer mm -hmm. in the country and 10,000 of bars and restaurants. So we're kind of broadly available and broadly accepted, but certainly not realizing our entire potential. I forget what the, the new, very new number is, but something like two-thirds or 70% uh, of all spirit purchases by dollar amount uh, are basically absolute vodka and above. So people are spending their money on spirits. And this has grown over the last 10, 15, 20 years, every year, kind of premium and super premium spirits have gone up, 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 up. 
And it doesn't fundamentally make sense. It's like that very, very first drunken revelation I had. It fundamentally does not make sense to mix a good spirit with a lousy mixer. So, yes, we're on just about every major food and, retail, food and beverage shelf in the country. Great. We're at tens of thousands of bars and restaurants, but it's still just scratching the surface. You know, literally 70% of all dollars for mixers should be your 50% should be uh, for better spirits. And right yeah. now it's just us and we have one competitor called Fever Tree out of the UK. And between us, we have upwards of almost 90% of the premium mixer market business in the in the United States. And at the same time, we're 10%-ish of the total mixer market. And that just doesn't fundamentally make sense. And so uh, we're widely available now. And now it needs to be kind of we should have more space than Schweppes in Canada Dry. Mm-hmm. Like our stuff outsells Schweppes in Canada Dry at a lot of retailers. And we expect premium mixers to be bigger than mainstream mixers uh, next year and a half, two years. Yeah. But the retail shelves do not look like that for a variety of reasons. But the retail shelves should start looking like that more, more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bar and restaurant offering should all reflect that more and more. So we've kind of done the foundation and now yeah. it's really slamming on the accelerator and really pushing it to where it can go. So I would imagine, I mean, you just said something that makes so much sense to me that I hadn't heard it put that way, but you are paying a lot of money, most of us who drink good, high yes. quality alcohol for yes. it. And then we're mixing it with junk. Yes. Like, why do we do that? And I would imagine that the next level for you would be raising that question in people's minds. Like, why are yeah. you putting that bad mixer in your totally. alcohol? Yeah, totally. And we have a lot of internal data that shows relatively nobody knows about us nor thinks about better mixers. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but every time somebody does know about it, their purchase intent is really, really high. Yeah. Their their actual purchase is really high. Their repeat purchase is very high. And then they also tell their friends about it. It's something like so obvious that that's after you've had three drinks with your friend with a better mixer, like, I want this all the time. Then you tell the next friend. So that's happening. And from a business and kind of marketing perspective is how do we accelerate that process? Do you have anything you would say to someone who's early stage, mid stage, and any lessons that you learned along the way that you'd want to share? Yeah. So the first one is just a fundamental one that there are a lot of disadvantages to being the little guy, especially in the food and beverage business. Um, look, there's some advantages as well. You know, we can be more nimble. We can try things. We can fail. But there's a lot of disadvantages just based on. Um, you know, every time I buy cardboard box or glass or aluminum, it costs more than the big guys do. Every time I fill stuff, it costs more than the big guys do. And then the big guys, you know, have better access to buyers and all that. There's a lot of disadvantages. So your product needs to be two, three, four times better than the mainstream alternative. if You're going to have a chance. It really needs to be something that consumers see. They're like, oh, yeah, I want to try that. And then once they try it, it delivers on that. So that's my first bit of advice. Like, aim for something that's two or three or four times better than, than the mainstream alternative. If you're just 25% better, that ain't good enough. Um, there's too many disadvantages and probably you don't know what you're doing. Like I certainly didn't know what I was doing, made a lot of mistakes. So it really needs to be two, three, four times better than the main, mainstream alternative. That's kind of the first one. And then the other one, if I look at like what's made the difference between success and not success for us, it's just resilience. Just like getting up, putting your socks on and shoes on the next day and getting out and doing it. I tell 
myself, but also my team, like we can, we're going to fail a lot and we're going to get punched in the face a lot. And you're allowed to get upset. You're allowed to get disappointed. You're allowed to get frustrated. You know, frankly, have as many drinks as you want that night, you know, have 57 <laughs> different drinks. Uh, like I don't care, but wake up the next day, 9am, get ready to go full stop. Cause it's next. The, the new day is a new day. Um, and that I think is the biggest thing that I've learned. And then what else? I guess the other one is uh, Cervantes has a really good line that I love. It says, he says, uh, be patient, but keep shuffling the cards. So, you know, get up 9am, keep going and keep being patient, but you shouldn't, at some point, you can't just do the same thing. If you play the same game that everybody else is going to play, you're not going to win. You've got to really try some different stuff. I would imagine that a lot of, you said that to yourself a lot last year. Did you guys, how did you do during, I mean, I know COVID's not over yet, but how did you guys do during that initial few months of that where everyone, I mean, there was a lot of, there were a lot of brands that did really well and I'm sure you did, but also had a lot of challenges on supply chain and stuff like that. So I drank a lot. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So our business kind of shifted 180 degrees pre-COVID. Our bar and restaurant sales was up, I think, 84% the year before mm -hmm. uh, and just cranking. And we had just won a mandate for all the Marriott, Sheridan's, W Hotels, JW Marriott's, uh, Ritz-Carlton's. We just won like the Marriott business and yeah. we were on cloud nine. We had a whole team retreat down in New Orleans, March 11th, 12th and 13th. Wow. Uh, and we no. were fired up and obviously the world changed. And fortunately, I and other people drank a lot. So yeah. our retail sales went way, 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 way up. We were up something like 75% uh, in our retail sales back in 2020, whatever year the pandemic started. Yes. So we were up something like 25% uh, on our retail and our bar and restaurant business kind of fell off a cliff. Yeah, And that was really hard. And then there's kind of the operational stuff. Fortunately, this was actually one of the places it was Vantage being the small guy. And also the guy, you know, my partner, Ben, who I started this thing with, runs kind of operation finance. I'm the kind of the, the ugly face in front. And he's kind of the one who makes a lot of it happen. He's really, really good at his job. And he was able to secure glass and cans and bottling time in a way that Pepsi, Coke and the other big guys were not. And uh, our supply chain was actually an advantage during COVID. We delivered when the big guys did not, partly because we're smaller, but also partly because we're lunatics and we just like cared more. Like if a Pepsi employee runs at a product, it's like, mm, ran out of product, put it in the TPS report. Whereas when we run out of product, we die. <laughs> like we stop breathing and that was not going to happen. So we delivered, I think, 99. One two percent of all shipments last year, which is just like on time, which is like it's incredible. It's a, is, congratulations. I mean, yeah. that's an amazing feat because I've talked to so many people who had the exact opposite experience. Um, so that's incredible. Yeah, made harder by the fact that our SKU mix changed 180 degrees. We went from an on-premise, mm -hmm. all this uh, what we call loose uh, glass bottles into can four pack cans, and so everything changed really quickly, and it was really hard. Um, but we got through it and uh, our retail sales kind of kept us going. Uh, the bar and restaurant sales team definitely got a little discouraged, uh, but we were in a position to not lay anybody off and kind of told them like, we're here. We'll get, we got money to ride this out for at least a year. We're going to keep a hold on it. A couple, we had a couple people switch kind of responsibilities, but we fought through it. And geez, Louise, that hadn't been for COVID, you know, Delta three weeks ago, I would have said we did A plus, A plus, A plus work because 
most recently the barn restaurant business was roaring back. Yeah. We had kind of cemented or kind of maintained a lot of the gains we got on the retail shelf. Again, remember that when people try our stuff or even think about trying our stuff, they're kind of hooked. Once you tell somebody, hey, yeah. for a dollar, you can have a better cocktail, mm-hmm. um, you know, buy a four pack of arts. 7.5 ounce cans for $3.99 versus uh, $1.79 for a plastic things of Schweppes that, you know, you're not even going to finish all at once. Um, people are like, yes, please. So once they started, that kind of helped us. So we were ripping and roaring these last three weeks. It's obviously keeping pretty close eye on what Delta's doing and what it means. But at the end of the day, like, I'm not worried about five years from now. Like, I'm pretty sure five years from now, premium mixers will outsell mainstream mixers. They're going to be two big companies doing it, us and Fever Tree. Hopefully we beat them. We're certainly working our tail off to beat them. But I'm pretty confident that the business is going to be in good shape. It's more just, hey, how much blood and tears is there going to be this year? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that talk about the advantage of being an entrepreneur and not working at a big company. Like, I just know we're going to get through it because I've gotten through other things. I got through 2008 when I had investors have asked me to rip up almost a million dollars in checks. And I moved in, me and my partner both moved in with our girlfriends. And now, fortunately, uh, they're each of our happy, uh, happy wives with mm-hmm. terrific kids and great marriages and great relationships with their fathers and mothers. So we made it through. But just having gone through that a couple of times, just got really just socked in the face. I just know we can do it again. And there's that that confidence. I feel like it cannot be taught. It needs to be kind of learned. Mm-hmm. or. Experienced. Yeah. How do you get yourself excited and motivated when you get knocked in the face? Like, do you have things that you think about or tricks that you do or books that you read? So I read a ton of books, but not even business books. I read 40 or 50 books a year, but that's just more for my own mental, just to get away from it. I think one of it is, uh, so there's a book I really like, it's called uh, River of Doubt. It's about when uh, Teddy Roosevelt was out of office after he'd been president and he somehow got talked into going out to Brazil and discovering this tributary of the Amazon. And, and he ended up like taking a horse, I don't know, three months and then go finding them going down this river for like a year, like clearly not what a Barack Obama is doing this year. But at one point they were just like stuck in the middle of the Amazon. All their canoes had sunk, you know, just absolute terrible. And there's like one answer. You're not going back up. You're only going down the river. Like there's only one way out. And so there's some of that. Like I don't even think about it any, anymore. Again, I'll have 47 drinks on uh, uh, after getting punched in the face, but 9 a.m. the next morning, just get up. And, you know, I've now been doing that for 15 years. So it's like not even something I think about anymore. It's, you know, wake up, take a shower, put your clothes on, eat some food, get going. And like, there's no other even thought in my brain. That's awesome. It's like you have no options. I have a, a something I love, which is burn the bridges. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah. I love that. There's no other way. Like it's going to happen because otherwise I'm stuck here on this island and I've got no way off. I love it. I yeah, think they so say, and there's like these Navy SEAL things. Every time once in a while I get aggro and read an aggro book right now. I'm not reading aggro <laughs> books. Yeah. We talk about Navy SEALs during trading. Like you can ring the bell and then you're out. Um, and sometimes people ring the bell and the instructors say, you really want to do that? And people are like, oh, um, actually, I want to try some more. And basically the conclusion is once you've rung the bell once, you'll always ring the bell another time. And, but once you've kind of conditioned your head to like, I'm not stopping, you can do anything. Yeah. So you're really tapping into your own experience, having gotten, as you say, punched in the face and recovered and doing it over and over again. I think that's really important for people to know. 
also I have a wonderful, wonderful kind of social, whatever structure. Like I have a phenomenal wife. Uh, I actually met her the night before I was going to start the business. It's the only day I've ever been late to work uh, the, to start my very first day. I have two great kids. My business partner, I've been you know, best friends with since been nine. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, we're really tight. I have terrific parents. So it's not just that I'm, um, you know, this superhuman person, never going to fail, never going to uh, suffer. It's also like, not going to say I haven't had bad times, but I have this great support system that kind of helps me get going and can remind me, hey, Jordan, you wake up and you get going. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you really wake up and you get going. Go get a cup of coffee. So I have a great social system and a great partner who just, you know, we share everything with. And that's the same, I guess, anybody who has young kids and is going through that with some, with a with a life partner or spouse um, sees it as well. It just to to fail, succeed and struggle with another person just makes it all more uh, more doable. That's amazing. That's really compelling also to hear. I mean, I think a support system, no matter where it comes from, is really helpful because it is easy as an entrepreneur to get tunnel vision and to not really be able to get out of your own head and yes. in your own experiences. So having the system around you of people who can sort of give you reality checks and advice and yep. yeah. And then awesome. as I've gotten older, I've, you know, tried to develop my whatever practice, whatever it is, like certain ways that can uh, snap you out of it and whether it be going for a walk or getting some exercise or reading a book. Like I kind of figured out, you know, I'm now 45 years old and can figure out things that can reframe or yes. kind of steer me in a little better direction. And look, it's not easy. It's not like mm-hmm. I do it perfectly every day, but at least when I wake up, uh, yeah, I have a plan uh, for what happens when I do get punched in the face. Yeah. That's awesome. I have another uh, thing that's on my wall in my office. It said, says it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be worth it. And I think that's, the key for entrepreneurs, like it's not going to be easy. So if that's what you're looking for, probably not the path. No. no. And I tell people who are entrepreneurs, like do this only because you have to do it. Like it's, it's dumb. Like it's really hard. It's not lucrative. It's a lot of annoying stuff. You have much less flexibility in some ways, but do this because you have to, like I needed to do this. I needed to start my own company and build this thing. And if you don't need to, please Louise, get a different life and I bet you it's going to be even happier for you. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. Any closing thoughts you want to share? I mean, there's so much great stuff in here. I love it. But is there anything else you feel like you wanted to share that we haven't gotten to? No, just try our stuff. It's Q Mixers. We've got 11 different flavors available just about anywhere. And make up a good cocktail. I feel like, again, the world is a scary place these days. And now more than ever, I feel like people need a really good drink. Um, yeah. Try to share it with your friends and your loved ones and really try to appreciate it because uh, at the end of the day, that's what's important. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. It's so great to have chatted with you. And I think there's so much good stuff in here. Awesome. Thank you, Thank you so much for having me.